All right, now questions on ch- chapter 30, Genesis 30. The first question right here. Uh, yeah, so um, so he had the sons. You were saying from Reuben to Joseph, 11, plus Dinah, the daughter. And they were all within six, seven years of age of each yeah. other. So a lot of children in the home that were all about the same age Yeah. there. Um, so that's just something that... Like when we were earlier in the book, uh, that Jacob and Esau were in their 60s whenever they had their conflict. Uh, anyway, it's just something that's uh, startling to think about that many children in that close proximity to one another. Then okay. the, I guess the other thing following up on that is uh, with Isaac, Abraham and Sarah sent him back to get a wife from Padan Aram, and then with Jacob, Isaac and Rebekah sent him back to the family to find a wife. Then Jacob leaves with his sons, but he doesn't send them back to get wives. So where would they have gotten their wives from? And is it possible that they would have married their sisters within the family? Okay, the first question, the first question has to do with a lot of children in the home. We are assuming that it's under one roof. But I don't think it was under one roof. I think that they had different tents. Like we said in Genesis 24, 67. 24, 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife. Sarah's tent. It says like that. Um, so in that sense these different wives would have had separate tents. That also is implied in chapter 30 when it says that 30.15, but she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband and would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. 16, when Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. I think that also implies that they weren't, Leah and Rachel were not living or dwelling in the same tents, but separate tents. And Leah went out to make sure that when he came in from the field, that he didn't go straight to where he usually went to Rachel's tent, but that he came to Leah's tent. So, yes, children were born within six or seven years, 12 children, but they weren't all under one roof in the same tent. Yeah. Okay, that's the first part of your question. The second question. Do you think uh, when his children became of age to marry, we know it was important for Abraham that Isaac marry someone within the family, and we know that in the case of Jacob, they didn't want him to marry one of the Hittite women like Esau had done. Well, with Jacob being the next in line, and then his children, his desire for them to marry believers, where would he have gotten those wives from? And do you think it's possible that they would have married their sisters? Because there's such a large household, and he has many sons and daughters. Do you think it's possible that they would have married their sisters, their half-sisters. In or you mean their, yeah, sisters, half-sisters. Well, 
It doesn't say anything about that. It does say in reference to Judah, Genesis 38, 38, 2. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he married her. Took her means took her as wife. And that's a certain Canaanite. So there he did marry one of the daughters of Canaan. And then in the case of Joseph, Joseph in Egypt, Genesis 41, Genesis 41, 45, Genesis 41, 45, Joseph. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. In the case of Joseph, for sure, it's highly likely that, that she became uh, a convert. It's highly likely that that's the case. Um, it's uncertain in the case of Judah, perhaps so also. But because Judah's behavior is a bit um, strange, fishy right here, sinful in Genesis 38, that it's probably the case that at some point when, when Joseph was in Egypt, and he was there for at least, uh, let's see, from age 17 to 39, so from age 17 when he was sold as a slave, and age 39 when his brothers and father and whole family, all the relatives were reunited with him, that during that period that there were, were likely conversions taking place among his brothers and their households because that's a part of what Joseph was doing in Genesis 45 and 46 he was testing his brothers to see if their character had changed. And he even actually says it openly, you are spies. And they say, no, no, we're not spies. We are honest men. Well, if you are honest men, then go do this and let me see if you are honest men. That is, go bring your brother like that. So he wanted to test them before he disclosed who he was to them to test if they had different character. So from age Joseph's age, 17 to 39, I think some changes in their character had occurred, which we would ascribe to their conversion. It's hard to imagine that all of his brothers would have been that malicious as a group, as believers, to sell him as a slave. Or even to kill him. Because they first said, let's kill him. Yeah. So it's hard to imagine that they were all believers. I think Joseph was at age 17, but they weren't yet. That means that it's possible that his brothers married Canaanite women. Yep. Yeah. Okay, next question. Paul, would you like to ask? Yeah, I had a couple of questions. Of course, the custom of the time was, uh, was to have... Uh, to have be able to give your servant or maid servant to the handmaiden to your husband to be have children would it have been better for uh, Sarah and or I mean Leah and Rachel to have waited on God 
Okay. Okay. We know that the custom, you're correct, we know that the custom was to use a maid slave when the wife or the mistress wanted the maid slave to become a wife of her own husband to give her to him as a wife, that that would happen initiated by the woman, the wife, the mistress, that that was what was practiced. Um, But should they not, should they have avoided that? Should they have waited on God and avoided that practice? Okay, to answer that, there are several things we have to explain. And I'll take some time to explain it since I'm sure at least a handful of you haven't heard this explanation. For one, if these patriarchs, and even matriarchs, like Sarah, Leah, and Rachel in the book of Genesis, if the patriarchs and these matriarchs were sinning, they were practicing this sin regularly or throughout their life. It's not as though they suggested it, the sin occurred, and then they stopped doing it, meaning they divorced or Jacob and Bilhah, Jacob and Zilpah did not have relations anymore after the first sin. They didn't do it anymore. It's not presented that way. It's presented as though they, they were married and it was good and blessing came from the marriage, such as the 12 patriarchs from Jacob and then the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so it's presented in a positive way, not a negative way. Now, some have found, to use one example, in the case of Abraham, some have found from Genesis 11 to 25, a reason to blame Abraham for almost everything that happens in all these chapters. We could mention several of them, but just for the sake of illustration. For example, in Genesis 11, it says that Abraham and his father and some of the family, they left Ur of the Chaldeans, in Genesis 11:31 in order to enter the land of Canaan and they went as far as Haran and settled there it says they settled there and the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran so why was it that they stayed there and settled there when God didn't tell them according to Genesis God didn't tell them well when you go from Ur Go up to Haran, stay there a few years, wait for Terah to die, and then go to the land of Canaan. So when Abraham stopped there in Haran in the north, before Canaan, they accused Abraham of sin, lacking faith, doing wrong. They accused him of that. Actually, if we read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, Stephen says that it was God who took him out of war, and then removed him from Haran. That is, God initiated where he was supposed to stop and how long he was supposed to stay and when he was supposed to leave one place and go to another. That's the way Stephen takes it in Acts 7, 1 to 4. In that way, he's not sinning. He's just doing what God told him to do. He had to stop in that place temporarily. In chapter... Chapter, let's say, chapter 14. Abraham goes to war. This is a war of recovery. 
these kings of the east had conquered this area of the land of Canaan and had even taken Lot with Lot's possession and also the women and the people. It says in 1416. That's what they had taken. So Abraham's concern was to recover his possessions and his relatives. Right? But they still say Abraham did wrong because war is a sin. There's no occasion whatsoever for Christians to support warfare. And in this case, it was a war of recovery. He did not initiate an aggression or aggressive war against someone. They did with him. He's just trying to recover what he lost. Um, We could go on and on through these chapters, okay? So they find fault with Abraham throughout his life. Now, if all of these examples, including Abraham marrying Hagar, chapter 16, including Abraham laughing in chapter 17, including um, in chapter 21, Abraham um, sending Hagar and Ishmael out of the house, divorcing Hagar and sending them both out of the house, and only putting meager, meager foodstuffs in their hands, okay, that that is shameful and sinful, okay? On and on, they go on to accuse him. If all of those are actual sins, then why is Abraham a model of the faith? Why is he called the friend of God, right? Why is he called these in Scripture? And specifically, why does Paul in Romans chapter 4, Paul in Romans chapter 4, 18, 4, 18 to 22. Romans 4, 18 to 22. In hope against hope, he believed, that's Abraham. Abraham believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In 18, he quotes Genesis 15, 5. So shall your descendants be. Then in 19... He's summarizing Genesis chapters 17 and 21 about the birth of Isaac. Correct? And in 22, he quotes Genesis 15, 6. In 22, he quotes Genesis, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Well, if this is the case, throughout the whole narrative then, at least the major chunk of the narrative of Genesis, he's considering hope against hope, Abraham believed. In 19, without becoming weak in faith. In 20, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And 21, being fully assured fully assured that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Therefore, also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
There, it's righteousness for all these things he did. Now, that righteousness applies also to his actions in chapters 17 and 21. Even though it was reckoned to him as righteousness is a statement from Genesis 15, 6. That means his whole life is characterized by righteousness. Okay? Also, in the book of Genesis, in a, in a uh, certain place, that is in chapter 20, when interpreters are apt to find fault with Abraham for saying to Abimelech, she is my sister, Sarah is my sister, God does not attack Abraham. God does not intercept Abraham. God does not condemn Abraham. God does so to Abimelech and stops Abimelech before Abimelech sins. Okay? But of Abraham, he expected Abraham to pray for Abimelech, for Abimelech to be forgiven and healed. Where we typically misinterpret that and say, Abraham did wrong, Abimelech was in the right, so on. By the way, they never blame Sarah for anything. Um, uh, and that's because we live in the age of, we live in the age of feminism. We, we live in the age of feminism because Sarah was the one who in Egypt in Genesis 12 was willing to say, yes, he's my brother. Sarah was the one who initiated in Genesis 16 to say, take Hagar to be your wife so that I might have a son through her. And then Sarah was the one who, in, uh, in the case of Genesis 20, who was also willing to say, yes, he's my brother, right? So Sarah, they don't usually find fault with her. They're usually bashing Abraham because they love to bash men. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so because we can't do that, uh, let me give two more examples and then uh, further explanation. 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember that David, he already had several wives by this point. In fact, he had, I think, by this point, at least 18. Okay, eight, eight wives and ten concubines. Okay, he had 18. But what did he do in 2 Samuel 11? He committed adultery and murder and deception, correct? And he did not repent until Nathan confronted him to repent. Then about nine months had passed, okay? And then when God confronts him in Genesis 12, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 12, 8. 2 Samuel 12, 8. This is what God says to David. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom. If your Bible doesn't say bosom, check if it has a footnote. Into your bosom. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you Many more things like these. Many more things like these. The things that he just mentioned. Master's house, master's wives, the house of Israel and Judah. If you had done it the right way, I would have added these to you. But you didn't do it the right way. That's why 
I am reckoning this sin against you and about to announce my punishment against you. Correct? Okay. Now, this inheritance of the previous dynasty's wives, that's what he means in verse 8. So Saul had wives, plural, that David inherited upon the death of Saul. His, Saul's widows became David's wives. Okay? That's what he means by that. Um, second example, Second Chronicles 24. Second Chronicles 24. Second Chronicles 24, 1. Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah from Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he became the father of sons and daughters. Joash, in verse 2, did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. The next verse then says, Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he became the father of sons and daughters. Which means that is a part of the right that Jehoiada and Joash did. Correct? But after Jehoiada died, look at 2415. 2 Chronicles 2415. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then in the next paragraph, it explains how this Joash, after the death of Jehoiada, murdered Jehoiada's son, yeah. Zechariah. Murdered him because Zechariah preached against Joash's sins, and Joash didn't like it, and then murdered Je- Jehoiada's son. So there's a clear example of Joash in the period of righteousness that Jehoiada encouraged him to practice. It included two wives without any statement of sin or doing evil in that action. Now, I think, though I don't have, I just have from these observations, I don't have from an explicit verse that God said, thus you shall do. All I have is God God, um, supporting it and God saying that he will bless it. Okay, that's all I have. I have that he did right in the sight of the Lord. I have, such as in Genesis 30, the women all acknowledge that it happened by the gift of God that they bore children, right? That's what I have. But if we want to think about it in terms of the morality of it, the rightfulness of it, think of it in terms of these exceptions. Exceptions. In the book of Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve's children had to marry brother and sister, right? Brother and sister had to marry. No doubt. But in the law of Moses in Leviticus, it became forbidden, just as it is today, right? Then 
When Noah came out of the ark with his three sons, they didn't have any children, right? Only the eight of them. The men with their wives, eight of them. Then when they had children, did those children not have to marry each other? So they had to do that then. What about in the book of Genesis chapter 22, when God commanded Abraham to put Isaac on the altar? Abraham thought that he had to put him to death, but he believed that if he put him to death, God would raise him up from the dead since he believed in resurrection and because he knew that God promised Isaac to be the ancestor of Christ. Abraham knew that according to Hebrews 11, 8 to 19. Okay? So Abraham knew that. But still, God commanded Abraham to put Isaac on the altar and to slay him and offer him up as a burnt offering. Are we supposed to do that? Of course not. No. In fact, when the people of Israel did that to their own sons, God forbade it, he condemned it, and he said, it did not even enter my mind. Why are you doing this to your idols? Why are you thinking that this is good? It never even entered my mind to command you to do this. Correct? So there's another exception, Genesis 22. How about Isaiah the prophet? Isaiah the prophet in chapter 20, he was told to walk about three years, for three years, naked and barefoot as a token, as a sign and illustration of the destruction and exile that the people would experience so that they would see that what he was demonstrating in great shame, that great shame based on God telling him to do that is what the nations were going to experience because they refused to repent of their sins. It says in Isaiah 20 verse 4, So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. So, and one more example is Hosea the prophet. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. When God commanded Hosea to marry a woman... He commanded him to marry a wife of harlotry. A wife of harlotry. Now, one interpretation is she was not a harlot before and when he married her. But uh, the other interpretation is that she became one after he married her. Well, in either case, I think the first is correct. But in either case, Even if Hosea was told by God that she would become a harlot, which man in his right mind marries a woman like that? God, in fact, doesn't want us to do that, correct? He wants us to be virgins and he wants us to marry virgins, not to marry harlots or prostitutes. So in either case, Hosea had knowledge, either she currently is or in the future she will be, And in the normal situation, we should never enter into a marriage like that. But God commanded Hosea to do it. And I think that with these exceptions, and there's a few others, that these exceptions are here in Scripture. We cannot blame them for practicing sin, regular sin, unrepentant sin, 
Because the moment we do that, we have to uh, jettison them as not good examples to follow right. in terms of their faith and their knowledge, their obedience. And the Scripture says, 1 John 3, the one who practices sin is of the devil. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. They can't be practitioners of sin all their life and be saved. Right. So then we have to have another explanation as to what's happening in these passages. Okay? Next question. Um, it says that Jacob... Uh, ...said that Jacob uh, delivered the flocks that Laban gave him at the beginning of Separation. Yeah. Um, there's three days' journey between Jacob and his flocks. Mm -hmm. Well, he says it delivered him, delivered them into the hands of his sons. And since his sons couldn't be much more than six years old. That's verse 35. That's why I said in Genesis 30, 35. So he removed, the he there is Laban. And Laban's sons would presumably have been older than Jacob's. No doubt. Since Jacob was the father of Rachel okay. and Leah. So in verse 35, that's why I said, so he removed, the he is Laban. And in verse 36, and he put a distance that he is Laban. Okay, okay he's the one that did that. I've always been confused about that because I always thought that Jacob was doing the separating and uh, Jacob was putting the, his little children in, and I couldn't figure out how the structure would be on that. Yes, yes. And I think it becomes clear by verse 36. And he, Laban, put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. Right there, right? Yeah. And Jacob. It doesn't make sense to say, and Jacob put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. Yeah, I got you. Okay. It would be good for the Bible, the, the editor, to, to put a footnote on this, <laughs> say, that is, i.e., Laban. To do that for this. It's very important when you're reading the Bible to follow the pronouns and to look for the antecedent. Who is it that we're, we're talking about? It helps if we're paying careful attention. And when the confusion happens, seek, seek out uh, a resolution. That is, reading the context carefully, both before and afterward. And then also a commentator or two, if you read two or three of them, um, they will sometimes bring out that confusion and clarify it. Good question. We, we covered before that in 29, when Laban lies 
to him and tell him that he will get the one, but he gives him the other. And he doesn't quarrel with him and ask him, why should I believe you now when you just lied to me? But we see in 30 the benefits that come from him going on. Could that be granted as, or could that be looked at as his faith in believing Laban? His faith that the Lord would work things, because Laban meant it for Leah. For Leah. Well, he meant it for evil by lying. Yeah. But God meant it for good in 30 by giving him those benefits. Yes, okay. In chapter 29, Laban tricks Jacob. And so why would Jacob believe Laban for Rachel? Yeah, if he just liked him the day before. If he just lied to him the day before. Well, is he practicing faith and hoping that that would happen based on the the promise of God? Um, The text doesn't say he was believing the promise of God. It does say, though, that he loved her in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. At the very least, he loved her so much he wanted to see what would happen. And he, he didn't have to wait very long. He didn't have to wait years and years again to right. see if, if Laban was going to be true to his word. So he waited another seven days and then he got her as a wife. So he saw that fulfilled quickly. Uh, there was a second part to that. You, well, in, you compared it with another example? In 30. Uh-huh. He is granted much wealth through this process with the lambs and the goats. And what I'm saying is, Laban meant it for evil, but in the end, we see that God meant it for good because it came to. Okay, yeah. Then in both chapters, actually, in chapters 29 and 30 with the wives, and then in chapter 30 with the flocks, this is. Um, this is Laban wanting to do evil against Jacob. But in chapter 31, Jacob knows what God's doing. It says in 31.7, Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. He knows that God's reversing it, which is what God does this is a pattern of Scripture. We know that to be true with Joseph, right? G- Genesis 50, 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. This also happens on the cross or at the cross, right? It, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. Right. But God raised him up. Yeah. Acts 22, 22 to 23. So it's the same way. And that's the same way also with us. That's Romans 8, 28 with us. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Right. Which means we shouldn't be discouraged when evil people do wrong against us but be patient and wait and see how God is going to turn it around. Sometimes we'll see it in this life, but even if we don't see it in this life, we shouldn't get discouraged. Right. Wait for the life to come. 
Psalm 73. Psalm 73, yes. Um, Whom have I in heaven but you? You are my portion and the strength of my heart. Right? So, he, whom have I in heaven but you, he says. When he's fixated on this world, it discourages him. Until he walks into the sanctuary of God, he says. Until I walk into the sanctuary of God, then I perceive their end. Surely you set them on slippery places. Yeah, they're going to slip and fall just like that because God is going to suddenly bring about their destruction. And then I will be vindicated, just like Jacob, just like Joseph, just like Christ, and just like all of us. Like the martyrs in Revelation. The martyrs in Revelation, yes. The martyrs in Revelation, in chapter 6, they are going to be vindicated. Revelation... Chapter 6, 6, 9 to 11. And we are included in this. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Jesus says this too in the end of the Beatitudes, in 5.12 and 5.13. Yes, Jesus says the same in the Beatitudes. 5, 10 to 12. 5, 10 to 12 in Matthew. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, another question. Oh, in case we're not, in case someone's not going to be able to make it to the uh, How Jesus Wrote seminar on October twenty fourth and fifth, could we have like a precursor, like a, a trailer? A precursor, a trailer? A trailer. <laughs> well, uh, if you know who I am, you, <laughs> you've heard me say things here and there. Um, uh, also, there, I do have a couple of messages on the, the website, uh, Institute for Biblical Christianity, in the recommended sermons section. You could check those out. Um, but I, I do plan to deal with the common objections that Christians have to knowing about politics, being involved with politics, um, praying or not praying, and their values, their views. On what basis do they decide what's right and what's wrong? Um, for, for example, here's one. All sin is the same. All sin is the same. There, are, there aren't 
gravities of sin or degrees of sin, all sin is the same? Well, the short answer, all sin produces death. In that sense, they are the same. But all sin isn't the same in terms of consequences or in terms of gravity, in terms of punishment. There's a difference between stealing a pencil and stealing $10 million. Correct? There's a difference. And there should be a difference. Both are crimes and both are sins, but... Well, actually, I don't know if... Well, if you steal a pencil from the store, that would be a crime. But if I stole it from you, I don't know if it's a crime. But whatever, I don't know legally speaking if that's a crime. But it's still immoral and unethical, right? It's still that before God, a crime before God, if, if not in society. But there are degrees or, or seriousness differences between one sin and another sin. For example, remember Jesus said... When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it goes to waterless places. And with, in not finding rest, it says to itself, let me return from where I came. So it goes back into the man and takes along with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go and inhabit the man. And the last state of the man becomes worse than his first. So even Jesus makes that comparison of something being worse than another. Um, and because they do that, Christians do that, then they say, well, because all sin is the same, I can't vote for anybody. I'm not going to vote for anybody. Or I'm going to vote in their own estimation. I'm going to vote in my own estimation the, the perfect candidate whose name is... Um, Yabba Dabba Doo Smith, from a political party that you don't even know, okay, that probably has three and a half members. You know, they, they go that obscure to say, well, he is the perfect candidate. Well, I guarantee you, if any of us were to know that candidate from, from the no-name party that has no membership, no influence, whatever, but his name will be on the ballot, I guarantee you, if we were to check out that candidate, we would be able to find fault with his views that do not square with Scripture. No doubt. No doubt. We would find that. Another aspect to it. These people are so nitpicky and so self-righteous. That's really what they are. They're self-righteous. They're so nitpicky and self-righteous. I guarantee that if Christ were a candidate today, they would they would be against Christ and say, I don't want to follow you anymore. How are you going to get into politics? It's so filthy out there. You're going to pollute yourself. You can't be my Savior and Lord. I'm going to walk away. And he's a carpenter's son. He's from that town of Nazareth. Yeah, besides that, he's, he's from a no-name place. Yeah, he, he's like from the middle of Oklahoma. Right? <laughs> He, 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 yo, well, that's the way they looked at it, right? He, he, he's, not, he's not from New York City. He's, he's not from New York City. He's not from Chicago. He's not from Los Angeles. He's a no-namer from a no-name town in a no-name state, right? That's the way they would look at him. That's the way they talked about him religiously, didn't they? Can, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right, they said? Isn't he the carpenter's son, they said? So... That, that's the way people have. But in 1 Timothy 2, 
When he urges us, he says, first of all, then I urge that in treaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Now, when Paul says that, he urges us to pray and to be thankful. How can we pray and be thankful if we're not keeping up with what's going on? Or if we have such a sour and negative attitude towards everything that the only thing that we're concerned about is going to work and then coming home and, and doing our hobbies and playing our sports and, and uh, playing video games on our joystick, right? If that's the way we're supposed to live our Christian life, that's contrary to 1 Timothy 2. Yep. If we're not involved, they're going to overtake us. They're going to overwhelm us. Yep. And you know, I don't think people, when they try to go extra biblical on these types of points of view, don't take into account that we live in a democracy, that we were given this gift of living in a democratic society where we have a representative republic where we can vote for our leaders. That wasn't exactly the same back here. So to, to advocate all authority and say, I need to stay out of the political realm, I think is irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah. Also, that when they say that, uh, we're not living in biblical times when God chose. Well, actually, God still chooses. <laughs> he still chooses, though he doesn't choose kingships, except in a few countries, he still chooses kingships, like Saudi Arabia, right? He still does that. In that sense, he chooses kings to rule over them. But he still is choosing. It's not as though God in the Old Testament was only concerned about Israel, because he even chose who was going to be the king of Babylon, he even chose who was going to be the king of Assyria and Persia. He, all, he chose all of them. He chose when they would arise and when they would be put down and demolished. He chose the kings of other countries. He's always been concerned about not only Israel, but all the nations, raising up leaders and demoting leaders, putting them down, and even humiliating them. Sure. He did that to Pharaoh. He said, for this very reason, I raised you up in Egypt, right? So God's always been doing it. So there's no change between Old Testament and New Testament. He's still raising up and putting down leaders today. So they can't say, well, God's doing it differently now. No, he's not. Not, not essentially differently. He's not. And even when they had kings and despots, tyrants ruling over them, like Judah did with Nebuchadnezzar, what did God tell Judah to do? In Jeremiah 29, what did God tell Jeremiah to do in Jeremiah chapter 29? This is in exile. He's instructing them to do this in exile in the Babylonian kingdom. He says, we'll begin in 29.4. 29.4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace you will have peace. 
In its peace, you will have peace. In its welfare, you will have welfare. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Even when you are ruled by foreigners, pray for them. Because when God blesses them, he will bless you. And then don't listen to false prophets. And that's the same today. Verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So today, the Christian false prophets and teachers who are teaching contrary to Scripture, don't listen to them. Don't listen. They are deceiving you. We still pray for the leaders that are uh, boldly unrighteous. Do we pray for the leaders who are boldly unrighteous? unrighteous? (laughs) The nine-month abortion leaders. The nine-month abortion leaders. We... No, in their case, there is a sense in which we pray for leaders generally and pray for their repentance. But when we have an unrepentant, an unrepentant, stubborn leader, official, and even pastors, and even people generally, whoever it might be, who is stubbornly rebellious against the Word of God, in these blatant and egregious ways, we see it with their very eyes, we need to pray against them. Pray for their demise. Pray, pray for God to bring about justice. Justice for His elect. We read that in Revelation 6, 9-11. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. So if they have persecuted us and even persecuted us to death, we should pray for God to mete out his vengeance on them. And that is not a sinful prayer because those saints are in heaven at the throne, right? And they're praying in a sinless way for the vengeance of God. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. When we pray for their demise, we're praying for justice. It's not just a curse on them. It's the curse of a, of a sentence of justice. Justice and only justice. Deuteronomy 16 says. It says in Luke 18, 1. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Unrighteous judge, right? Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Meaning faith will be rare on the earth. In this parable, the widow 
approaches an unrighteous judge, he doesn't care about justice. But he gives her petition, grants it because she persists, right? So is the widow wrong to expect an evil judge to practice righteousness? No. So if the widow is not wrong to expect an evil judge to practice righteousness, then why don't we expect evil judges or evil politicians or evil pastors or evil people to execute justice? And if they don't, um, that God deals with them. Because it says in 7, bring about justice for his elect. Now think about this. If the widow is an example of the elect, if someone, let's say there's a criminal wronging her, and she goes to the evil judge. The evil judge eventually gives the widow her petition, her lawsuit, in her favor. Then what happens to the criminal? If she receives justice, what happens to the criminal? He, he also receives justice, but a justice that punishes him, right. and in her case, a justice that vindicates her. Isn't that the nature of justice? Even if we just say, there, there's a wicked leader, and we say, Lord, bring about justice for us and for him. Well, for us, it will be protection. Give me legal protection. Give me protection and vindication. And for him, it has to be punishment. What else are we saying when we say, give us justice? Right? That's what justice is. It's twofold. It helps the innocent, and then it condemns the guilty. That's what justice is. So this is all New Testament. Just to name a few places. In the New Testament, we should expect, and if we're expecting that of the officials we have, are we not supposed to pray accordingly? So if we pray accordingly, we pray for the demise of evil judges, of evil politicians, of evil pastors, of evil people, right. that they not get their way. And that the righteous, the elect, the believers are protected. All right.